Yeah, isn't that a great song? Wow. Let's pray together. And Lord, we're thankful to be here tonight. Very thankful. We're grateful for our health and that we could be here. And we're so grateful for this beautiful day. What a treat this day has been. The beauty of the weather and, and the cool weather and the clear skies. And it's just a little taste of uh, your kindness to us. And we're grateful for it. And as we look into your word, I pray that the word would do its work to help uh, God's people to live with a quiet heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, message tonight is, is entitled, How to Have a Quiet Heart. How to Have a Quiet Heart, based on Psalm 131. Uh, I have a memory of, of going to the Ohio Amish country, the Holmes County, years ago with the kids. We're all little, and, and I was running at the time, and it's, it's work for me to walk now, but I was running at the time, and I went out running in the morning. It was one of those beautiful, cool mornings, and it was midsummer, and I was running, and I, and I ran past an Amish farm, and in the Amish uh, folks there, are many of them are meticulously neat and orderly. Their homes are just really orderly and very beautiful, kind of the mid, not the low Amish, kind of the mid... Amish there. And they have a a habit of taking their gardens, their flower gardens and their vegetable gardens, and putting them right out there by the road. It's almost like they're on display. They really want people to see their gardens. And then they work hard. You know, the girls are out shaving their lawns with the little rotary uh, mowers. Lois thought it was really a quaint and wonderful thing to shave along with a rotary mower. So she bought one. That was a pain, wasn't it? We decided we didn't want to be Amish. You liked it? You did? You're lying. Lying in church. And uh, it was out there. You just have to, you have to mow about three times a week. And it clips it off real low. Talk to Lois afterwards. She's shaking her head no. So she has a different opinion. And uh, anyway, so but, but there, there, there they were, just like beautiful clipped lawns and these gorgeous gardens with beautiful flowers and every imaginable kind of vegetable growing. And come this time of the year, a little bit later in the year, as the summer kind of comes to fruition, wow. Would they ever have the produce? Beautiful growing things uh, there. Beautifully, beautifully tended garden. Well, this little gem of a psalm, it begins by David talking to God about his own soul. And what he's really implying here is that a person who is healthy spiritually has to cultivate their own inner person like a person would really watch over a garden and see to it that it's watered and weeded and cared for and protected. A heart heart that's healthy has to be, an inner life that's healthy has to be consciously cultivated. Some of you, this is natural. Some of you, maybe it's not natural for you to do this. But, But it's really true. One thing you'll see immediately here as we begin to read this psalm is that David is talking about the cultivation of his own inner person, the quietness of his heart, the peacefulness of his heart. Let's just read this psalm, and then we'll talk about it uh, tonight. And we'll really talk to you about what a quiet heart isn't and, what, a, and how to have a, a quiet, what it is and how to have it. Psalm 131 is a psalm of David, a song of ascent, a pilgrim psalm. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. So David says to the Lord. Verse 2, surely I've calmed my, and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Let's talk a little bit about what quietness of soul is not. Now, this is a psalm of David. So we know some things about David. David did not live with an absence of turmoil around him. 
David did not live with an absence of responsibility. He was a king. David didn't live with an absence of threats and evil. He had enemies. David didn't live with an absence of past mistakes or current struggles with sin. All these things were true about David, yet he was able to say to God, I have set aside pride and I have a quiet, I have a quiet heart. How do you have a quiet heart? Quietness of heart is not an absence of outer turmoil. Sometimes when I say, let's have a quiet heart, you think I've got to get my environment around me all quiet. Well, that'd be wonderful if you can do it. But many people, most of us really can't, can't always do that. Quietness of heart isn't that. Quietness of heart is what, is what Jesus had when he was sleeping, and the Bible says, on a pillow in a boat during a demonic storm. Jesus is sailing over to Decapolis, which is the Greek region, which is the demonic region, which is where he's going to run into the Gadarene demoniac. And Satan has every reason to oppose him there. And so there's a demonic turmoil on the sea. And Jesus is in that, in a boat. And the Bible says he's sleeping on a pillow. This is the quietness of heart that Jesus had in the middle of a storm. Uh, Amy Carmichael has written a little book of poems called Toward Jerusalem. In it, she has this poem. Thou art the Lord who slept upon the pillow. Thou art the Lord who soothed the furious sea. What matter beating wind and tossing billow if only we are in the boat with thee? That good. Hold us in the quiet through the age-long minute when you are silent and the world is shrill. Can the boat sink while you, dear Lord, are in it? Can the heart faint that waiteth on your will? In a poetic way, Amy Carmichael said, if you're in the boat, then it doesn't matter if outside the boat is all storm and turmoil. It's not going to sink with you, with you in the boat. When I was a boy and, and our family went through hardships, sometimes it would be at the mealtime and we would be around the table and we'd, we'd have bills that we owed that were pressuring us or, or problems or difficulties. And, 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 and almost when you kind of have your heart in your throat, it's hard to pray and it's hard to eat. And somebody in the family would start to sing, With Christ in the vessel we can smile at the storm, smile at the storm. Smile at the storm with Christ in the vessel. We can smile at the storm as we go sailing home. Don't we sing rest? Sailing, sailing home. Sailing, sailing home. How do you know this? None of you? With Christ in the vessel, we can smile at the storm as we go sailing home. The whole family would sing. And sometimes there would be tears running down your face while you're holding hands and singing with Christ in the vessel. You can smile at the storm because inner tranquility doesn't demand outward tranquility. Jesus is an example. David is an example of this. Hey, Amy Carmichael herself was an example of this. So quietness of heart is not an absence of outer turmoil. Quietness of heart is not an absence of responsibility. <laughs> I just don't know why this came to me recently, but years ago there was a, there was a television program. And I think it's, it, it premiered in 1969. So a few of you might remember this television program was called Then Came Bronson. And there was this wandering kind of vagabond of a character who had no responsibilities beyond keeping his stomach full and his little motorcycle gas tank full. And he, at the opening scene, he pulls up between two cars. And one of the cars is obviously a businessman on his way to work in a suit and tie and his window's down. And he looks over at Bronson on his motorcycle and Bronson's got his bedroll. And he goes, are you off on a trip? And he goes, yeah. And then the businessman says, where are you going? And he goes, I don't really know. And, he, and then the businessman looks at him for a while, and then he goes, man, I really envy you. And then Bronson looks over at him and says, hang in there. 
Like, too bad you can't be like me, completely irresponsible, on a motorcycle going wherever I want to go, not worrying about a thing in the world. Here's the humorous part. My dad is the most responsible human being I know on the planet, but he loved that program. I got to believe that my dad kind of vicariously thought, how neat would it be to just get on a motorcycle and go across the country and not have all these kids to take care of, and this, this rowdy kid, especially my, my oldest son, and, and all the response. But thanks be unto God, my dad never did shirk his responsibilities and got on a motorcycle and leave us. One night in the summer, he was between jobs. He'd gone to work in a Christian college. It didn't work out too well. We moved back to Ohio, kind of licking our wounds, and dad didn't have a school teaching job yet. He would get one that fall, and everything would be okay. But at the time, we didn't know it. And it was midsummer, and my dad really felt defeated. And we sat out on the porch that night. It was just a warm night. And I was getting ready to leave to work third shift up in, uh, in Sydney at a Kroger. And my dad was really sad. And he said, well, wouldn't it be something? He said, you don't need to worry, Ken. He says, you're just a young man. And if you wanted to, you could take everything you own. You could put it in the trunk of your car. You could go anywhere in the country you wanted to go. And, uh, but life isn't like that, is it? As we begin to live life responsibly, we, we develop responsibilities. And if you take a wife, and then if you have children, and then, you know, they're... There are just responsibilities. Quietness of heart does not depend on us not having responsibilities. David had a quiet heart. He was a king. So he had lots of responsibilities. And so, um, and so it is. Quietness of heart then doesn't require an absence of outer turmoil. Quietness of heart, we know this from the life of David, doesn't require an absence of responsibility. Quietness of heart does not imply an absence of threats because David had enemies and wrote frequently about his enemies. And they weren't just like enemies like, I'm going to write something mean on Facebook about you. They were like, I'm going to kill you with a sharp knife. And David had an entourage of guys carrying sharp knives of their own, which I always thought was kind of cool. And if he wanted to dispatch an enemy, he could just say, and if he wanted to, and he often did, he said, don't kill him yet. We'll just kill him later, Paul and David would say. That was, makes the Bible fun reading, doesn't it? David continually faced enemies. And one greater than David had enemies, Jesus. And they persecuted Jesus to a violent death, but he had a perfectly quiet spirit. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, he cultivated a perfectly quiet spirit, even Jesus. So you can have enemies and still have a quiet heart. David did, Jesus did, many in Christendom have had much turmoil around them, many responsibilities, serious threats from enemies, still in inner, inner peace and, and, and quietness of heart. Quietness of heart doesn't require an absence of mistakes or even current resistance against that indwelling or remaining sin. David had that. He wrestled against that. He was a sinful man, and yet he was a man after God's own heart that coexisted. He wrestled with that. Yet the, the one greater than David didn't sin. David did sin. And this brief poem has one picture in it, and it's a picture of what? What did you catch it? Did you remember what I've been teaching you about what to look for in poetry? Is look for, among other things, look for pictures. So this is a poem, poem or song like this. This kind of literature isn't best analyzed grammatically by diagramming sentences as much as it's analyzed by capturing the big picture, the kind of the, the image or the emotion that it evokes. And if there's one image that this evokes, what is it? Picture of what? There's only one in it. A, yeah, a weaned child. Saturday nights, 
One of my favorite times of remembering the kids growing up, Lois would always just dutifully work and work and work while I was uh, pretending to prepare my message. And, and she would work and work and work to bathe all the kids and um, every one of them and then roll the girl's hair and plan her uh, gospel music uh, over the radio on Saturday night and getting the little girls in bed. It would be all sweet-smelling and pretty and cute. And then they go to bed, and, you know, especially on a Saturday night when you go up and, and you maybe get there a bit too late to kiss them goodnight because they're already sleeping. They would just be a little baby, a little child sleeping, and they smelled so sweet, or their hair would be so sweet. They would just have such a beautiful... They were really uh, rascals, but they seemed angelic at that point, right? Something about it. What did you say? Yeah, they're sleeping. My mother said, Kenny, when you were growing up, you were never quiet unless you were sleeping. So I'm like, well, there you go. They don't pay me to be quiet, Mom. Uh, But what a beautiful thing to see a child that's, you know, fed and well and quiet and peaceful. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? said, my spirit is like a child that's satisfied. So a wean child, and yet getting to weaned is not an easy thing, right? So they're crying over there, and you're like, no, it's not time to eat. Oh, this is going to be hard. They finally get get to that point. So then how do you have a quiet heart? Let me just share something from the scriptures from this text. To have a quiet heart, it's it's critical that we deal with anxiety or worry and, and, and unrighteous worry and unrighteous ambition. Now, where do I get that? Look at verse 1. Lord, my heart's not haughty or my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters or things too profound for me. Kind of like you've got to mind your own business. Or else what happens is you start taking upon yourself what only God can do. You're going to have anxiety. Or if you think you can, well, as long as you think you can do it, that's going to be arrogance. That's going to be pride. I can do this. Oh, no, you can't. And, and we, we tend to go, you know, unrighteous ambition, selfish ambition, we're to take responsibility for what we've been assigned, but we're not to worry or overreach what God has told us to do and what others are responsible to do. That's why he says, I don't concern myself with matters that are too great for me. David says this. So he has to concern himself with great matters of state, but there are some things he cannot concern himself with. Pastors have to get this in their hearts. You know, I, I, I've read dozens, if probably more than scores, probably hundreds of biographies of pastors. We don't usually write a biography about you unless you were unusual in your time. You know, you just walk in the pulpit and then all you do, and then the place just packs out with repentant sinners. You know, for most of us, it's not like that. You know, Spurgeon, one of his big problems, you know what it was? His crowd was so big that he couldn't meet in his church. He had to move outside of his church to go to this huge place and the balcony collapsed because somebody yelled fire and people died. And he carried the burden of that all of his life in a very deep way. That's not ever happened to me. The crowd isn't that big. I had a secretary tell me one time, not one of our wonderful secretaries, but a lady in a former church said to me one time, I said, well, like Spurgeon did this and Spurgeon did that. I remember her saying to me, well, you're not Spurgeon. And I just wanted to go, you're not my secretary anymore either. Golly. I I remember thinking, thank you for sharing that I wasn't Spurgeon because I was walking around here thinking I was Charles Spurgeon. And if you hadn't told me that, I would have thought I was the greatest, you know, 
the Prince of Preachers myself. Like, no, you know. So this summer I've been speaking to pastors and it's an occasion to speak to pastors. And I, and, I've, and I have a little talk I'm giving them in this little workshop that I'm doing called um, Being Faithful and Fruitful in Ministry When You Aren't Spurgeon. <laughs> so Spurgeon had these books, you know, Hints to the Village Preacher. And he spoke to, he often helped young or other pastors that were just regular pastors that weren't Spurgeon. And so pastors have to understand this too. It's like your job as a pastor is not to do what only God can do. Because then you might even like compromise. You might do things that are wrong. It's your job just to be a faithful witness of Christ, to work hard, to be honest, and to be prayerful, and to teach the word. And then what, and when you get to the point where you don't make the results happen, you say, now, Lord, you're responsible for that. I don't exercise myself in matters that are too big for me. Pastors have to do that. The Bible says this in, in this way in First Peter, not as being lords over those that are entrusted to you. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. God has entrusted people to a pastor. They're not his church. They're his flock, and they're, we're under shepherds. And he says, but being examples to the flock. Just be an example. Wives and mothers have to cultivate quietness of spirit and not overreach themselves to, you know, like if you're a wife, you're not responsible for making your husband something he's not. You aren't responsible for making your husband godly. You're not responsible for making your husband tender. You're not responsible for making your husband uh, appreciate what you did. Um, you know, you, you aren't. Uh, you're responsible to have a quiet heart, to submit to his leadership, to pray faithfully. And beyond that, when you take upon yourself what only God can do, then you're going to trouble the waters of your life and you're not going to have a quiet spirit. And me can, the Bible says this. Oh, this is beautiful, right, ladies? You know this passage in First Peter 3, uh, that a meek and quiet spirit is of something of great value in God's sight. Listen to what the Bible says. This is just beautiful. Uh, Peter said, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some don't obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe their chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Don't let your adornment be merely outward, arranging your hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be of the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit. That is a beautiful passage, isn't it? What is an incorruptible beauty? is a woman that has this quiet, quietness of spirit. There's incorruptible beauty there. And it says in the scripture, these things are of high value to God, which is very precious in the sight of God. Listen to that. Ladies, think about this. I say this with love for you. You know, like if you knew there was something in the Bible that says this is very valuable in the sight of God, then you definitely want to cultivate that. Quietness of spirit. How do you do that? But one of the ways is by not overreaching yourself and trying to do what only God can do with your, with your husband or with your lack of a husband or whatever the circumstance is. You take care of what God has given you to do, but then you just turn over to God what, what, he, what he hasn't put in your power. You just trust the Lord and trust the Lord with that. And the Bible says, In this manner, in former times, holy women who trusted God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their husbands. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. In other words, she's very respectful to her husband, even though he did some real bonehead things on a couple of occasions, right? Whose daughters you are if you do good and you are not afraid with any terror. You're like, if I, if I trust my husband's leadership, that's scary. Yeah, it is. That's why he's saying, don't be afraid. I know you want to be afraid because you've got to trust you know who and you, you know him really well. And he's like, ah, you know what am I going to do? Trust him. But the reason I quoted this, though, was to just share that little phrase that like in a pastor, a pastor has to quiet his heart and depend on God for only what God can do. He shoulders his responsibilities, then he gives to God his responsibilities. A wife or a mom 
has to do the same thing. A parent has to do the same thing. Cultivate that quietness of spirit. You're responsible to train them. You're responsible to warn them. When they're young, you're responsible to discipline them. But then when they're grown, you're responsible to be an example. You're responsible to pray, but you can't force them to be what they ought to be. God has to work with that. You can't. Beyond that, what are you going to do? You're going to bring inner turmoil to yourself. So you see how this works? Almost like a thermometer. If you sense inner turmoil, is it possible you're taking something upon yourself, which really is supposed to belong to somebody else or to God? might be. If you sense an inner turmoil, maybe it's because you're taking too much upon yourself. This doesn't mean you're to be irresponsible or lazy or indolent. Not even Jesus took upon himself what was the responsibility of his father. Elizabeth Elliot has written a wonderful little book, and she has an essay in it called How to Keep a Quiet Heart. Out of that, she said, was Jesus indolent? Was Jesus lazy? Well, of course Jesus wasn't lazy or sluggish or slothful, but he knew when to take action, and he knew when to leave things to his father. He taught us to work and watch, but he never taught us to worry to do gladly whatever we're given to do and to leave the rest with God. So one of the keys to having a quiet spirit is to realize what is God expected of me and what has God promised that he will do. And don't take upon yourself the responsibilities of other people. Now, some of you are wired that way. You're just like, you're responsible. You feel like if it needs to be done, I'm going to have to do it. So you may trouble your, your spirit then. Take it upon yourself things that you aren't responsible to do, but you can trust God to do those things. C.S. Lewis said the great sin, and I read this book in 1975. I'm 16 years old. I'm in high school. I'm reading Mere Christianity. I went and got the copy today. It's, it's 40 years old. It's like all in tattered pieces. I remember reading this. You know, Notice what he says in verse 1. David says, Lord, my heart's not haughty. My eyes aren't lofty. I don't concern myself with great matters or things too profound for me. He's saying I'm humble, and I'm, I'm only doing what I can do. C.S. Lewis said, pride is the great sin. That's what the title of that chapter is in Mere Christianity, The Great Sin. Pride is the great sin. Um, Lewis said, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, that's like sexual immorality, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that, he says in his inimitable British way, are mere flea bites in comparison. He says... They are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through pride the devil became the devil. Pride leads every other leads to every other vice. Pride is the essential vice, the utmost evil, the complete anti-God state of mind. So you don't want to, you want to humble yourself. Recently talking with a young man who'd come back to the Lord, and he was counseling him this week and into the night, way into the night, and he's just talking and. He says, so what I'm doing right now is I'm just saying, I'm asking God to humble me. I was like, what do we do when people say that, Lois? We say, when, when Lois and I will stand over there, <laughs> won't we? We'll stand over there and sing songs. And when it gets to a song that has a phrase in it like, I'm looking forward to suffering for you or humble me, we <laughs> both of us go, Beep. we don't sing that. I <laughs> don't sing that. God can humble me if he wants to, right? He can do anything he wants to. He asked me to humble myself. So I, I will yield to suffering if he sends it my way. And I pray God will give me grace to glorify him in suffering. I'm not going to actually ask him for it. So you'll see on those little phrases like, boop, I won't sing those parts. And then I come back in a little bit later on. And you say, well, that sounds like superstition. No, it's like, well, just don't. The Bible does say humble yourself. It doesn't actually say 
Ask God to humble you. <laughs> he can, and he can translate if you say the wrong thing. But, I'm, but the Bible does say frequently, First Peter and James and Old Testament and the Hebrews, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you in due time. Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. David is saying this, I'm humbling myself by not exercising myself in matters too great for me, not having selfish ambition or sinful anxiety. You're worried about stuff like, wait a minute, what can you do about that? Go to sleep. Don't worry about that. Sufficient to the day is the trouble thereof. You say, who am I going to marry? God's got that. He's, he can take care of it. You can't do anything about that right now, but just develop your own personal inner character and trust God with that. So what are you worrying about? Well, whatever it is, trust the Lord. And so uh, it also helps to have a singular purpose. I'm still on this thing, deal with anxiety, ambition. There's going to be a couple other things quickly, but... but um, I, I think another thing is what God doesn't want us to have a, a huge multiplicity of things we're worrying about. He wants us to concentrate on one thing. So how can you, what if you worry at, at night? Well, concentrate on one thing. It's expressed different ways in the Bible, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Or glorify God in your body. This is the Lord. Just think about, it's all essentially the same thing. Think about one thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There's something about concentrating on one thing that helps us to have a quiet heart. That's what the Lord wants us to do. You concentrate on me. Remember the little story I love to tell? It's like the, the grandfather helping his little boy doesn't know his way back. The little boy doesn't know his way back. It's getting dark. The grandfather says, you don't have to know your way back. You just have to be with me and hold my hand. That's it. His job is singular. You had one thing to do, hold his hand all the way home. So it is here over in Jackson. If you ever get over to Jackson and you're not worried about your health that much and you want something yummy to eat, go over on the east side of town on Ganson Street. Look up a restaurant that's been there since 1929. 1929. It's been in business since 1929 called Schlinker's. It's a little red place, hole in the wall. You normally wouldn't go there unless you had a recommendation. It's so yummy. They don't sell chicken. They don't sell steak. They don't, you can't get mashed potatoes and gravy. They have hamburgers with a special sauce. The hamburgers are known for being tremendous. And the fries for obscene portions. You go there and they ask you, how many do you want? They don't ask you what you want. They just say, how many do you want? They do one thing. They do it well. They've made a lot of money in that little place over the years. So the first thing is, have a quiet heart. That's critical that we deal with anxiety and ambition. Second thing is, um, to have a quiet heart, affirm what is true to God and to yourself and to others. If you, if you look at the text, in, in the three verses, you notice that in the three verses, verse 1, who's he talking to? He's talking to God. Lord, my heart is not haughty. My eyes aren't lofty. I'm not gonna, he's speaking to God. I'm, uh, Lord, I humble myself before you. In verse 2, he's kind of, so, almost as if he's speaking to himself. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child my soul within me. And then in verse 3, he's talking to Israel. So it's like he's talking to God, and he's talking to himself. He's talking to Israel. From, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forever. So quietness of heart depends on what you say to God. That'd be like prayer and praise, thanksgiving and so forth. Quietness of heart depends on what you say to yourself. That's big. How you speak to yourself, continually speaking truth to yourself. Quietness of heart depends on what you say uh, to others. Um, and that is, how do you talk to others? And this would be even in your home or anywhere else. What comes out of your mouth to God, what, what's in your secret meditations, and what you say to other people, regardless of who's around or who he, or you think hears it, it's going to have an effect on your quietness of heart. So have integrity and say the same thing to God, to yourself, and to others. And over and over again, say it. So that's the second thing. First, deal with anxiety. In other words, don't take on other things that you're not supposed to take on. Anxiety and, and selfish ambition. 
So don't do stuff you're not supposed to be doing or worry about what you're not supposed to be worrying about. You got enough, you know, stick to the knitting. You got enough stuff to take care of. Second thing is what you say, the meditations of what you say in prayer to God, what you meditate on your own heart, and then what you say to other people, how you talk to other people would be important. And the third thing would be to have a quiet heart, be faithful in public worship and, and bringing gifts to God. Why do I say that? Why would I say that? Where do I get that? Where is that in the text? Why did I say that? Did I just make that up because I wanted to talk about giving or something? Or Why did I say that? Bum, 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 bum. What do you think? Why did I say that? That's true. What are you going to say, Don? Oh, Scott, what are you? Exactly. It, what is this? It's a psalm of ascent. What are they doing? They're going up to worship and they're bringing gifts to God. That's the context here. That's, the, that's what the people are doing. So this is the song you sing when you're going up to God to worship. So if you want to have a quiet heart, then get a token of your appreciation to God, a gift. That's what they did. Uh, do what's necessary to clear your schedule of other things, which is harder and harder and harder in our pagan culture when people just run around doing what they want to do and they're ignoring God. This is a God ignore. I'm driving at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning because I got done preaching at 10 o'clock. So I'm driving at 11 o'clock and it grieved me as I drove across the state going, I'm sure all these people didn't, have, didn't go to the early service. Just a God ignoring culture. The, the air they're breathing came from a God they ignore. The life they're living came from a God they hate, or they neglect, they ignore. Not people who have a quiet spirit. They acknowledge God. And how do they do it? By going to public worship, by periodic seasons of renewal, like a Psalm of Ascent would, have, would imply, by taking a gift of thanksgiving and going up to Jerusalem and saying, this is my gift, this is a portion of what you've given to me, I give to you. Now, the people that do this, they, they have a quiet heart. It's a little bit like what it says in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Concerning brotherly love, I have no need that I should write you. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. Then he says this, I urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you aspire to lead a quiet life. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like he's saying, I want you to have the ambition to not have selfish ambition. I just want you to lead a quiet life, be faithful. Mind your own business. Work with your hands as we have commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those that are outside and that you may lack nothing. These people in the Thessalonian letter were saying, Jesus is coming back, so we don't need to work. He's like, look, mind your business, work with your hands, provide for yourself. Otherwise, the people outside are going to say, look at you, you're lazy and indolent and you're using religion for an excuse not to work. He's saying, how to have a quiet, just do, do your business, go to work. Uh, earn a living with your hands, pay your bills. Take care of your responsibilities. The rest of it, trust me, and then you'll have, a, you'll have a quiet heart like a weaned child. So I hope you can do that. And that maybe, you know, aside from all my cute little things I said, here's what I would recommend that you do. When you don't have a quiet heart and you sense that, go back to this passage, the infallible, authoritative, powerful, working word of God. And you got three verses right there. You could tumble those over in your mind just before you go to bed at night. You could say, Lord, my heart is not haughty. And my eyes are not lofty. I don't exercise myself in matters that are too great for me or things that are beyond me, right? You could say, I've behaved and quieted my soul like a, like a wean child, like a wean child with his mother within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. 
Let's uh, go to prayer.